This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to Science Friction. As we head into the silly season, I'm Natasha Mitchell kicking off our summer season, a chance to enjoy some of your and our favourite episodes from this year. On the next two programs, we are taking a womb's eye view of the future of reproduction. Blessed day. Have you been gripped and shocked by The Handmaid's Tale? Margaret Atwood has us imagined this totalitarian theocracy called Gilead, where pregnancy gets outsourced forcibly and violently to the last remaining fertile women called handmaids. How is everything done there? Have we healed? Mm-hmm. I know this is difficult for you, but you have done something extraordinary. You promised me you would take care of this baby. Yes. Well, here on Science Friction, I want you to imagine a different world. Yes, it is one where pregnancy is outsourced, but to technology, not handmaids. Praise be his mercy. She had tried one on once, years ago. She'd wanted to understand what it felt like to wear one, but more than that as well, the appeal of it. The voice of a character called Eva in a novel called The Growing Season, it imagines a hypothetical future where babies could be grown, not inside a woman's body, but outside of the human body altogether in an artificial portable baby pouch. It was before all the different textures were available, though there was a range of colours, bright yellow, she'd requested, fluorescent, like one of those tropical fish. This is the equivalent of six months, they'd told her, as they let her strap it on over her T-shirt. In the early days, the full-life doctors had helped people position it, over the shoulders, snug on the belly. But they realised it was making people nervous. Much better to do it yourself, they decided. Then you can see how easy it is, how versatile, how safe. So next show, you'll meet a Swedish woman who received one of the world's first ever uterus transplants. Lolita's story will blow your mind. Who donated their uterus to her? What were the risks? Did it work? At least 13 children have been born now using this pioneering procedure, but it is ripe with scientific and ethical challenges. But I'm kicking off with pure science fiction. The texture was almost butter soft, but padded too and it slipped into place so easily it terrified her. Helen Sedgwick is a physicist and a bioengineer turned novelist, and she wants you to try on a baby pouch for size. Instead, she should have gone for a deep black red, like the colour of the inside, to remind herself of what it really was, to make sure she didn't slip quietly into feeling at ease with it. Even though there was no baby inside the trial pouch she was wearing, she knew she could not let herself relax. The pouch itself is fluid-filled, flexible, warm pouch. You strap on um, almost like a sort of rucksack, I suppose, but it sits around your front. It sits on your belly exactly where a pregnant belly would be. And you strap it on over your shoulders and around your back. So it's very comfortable and secure on you. And you can carry it like that. You can feel the baby kicking through the membranes of it. You can stroke it. You can you can sing to your baby and things like that. There are various adapters so that you can talk to it through a, uh, through a special adapter and it's fed with nutrients. The nutrients can be specially designed from your genetic makeup. So you can feel incredibly close 
to the baby. And, and at different times through the book, we see people wearing it and kind of stroking it and cuddling it and feeling really protect, protective of their child inside. So it's, it's a very personal tactile experience for the parents. It can be shared by men and women. It can be shared with other family members if you want, though in my society, that's quite rare. And it's presented as being much healthier for the baby, for the fetus as well. It's almost become um, a designer item, hasn't it? Yeah. It's almost a fashion item, this baby pouch. Mm-hmm. You can choose, for example, different different styles, different covers, different textures for it. There have been photos in the press of celebrities wearing these pouches and, and having twins wearing matching pouches and things like that. It's become really trendy for the kids wearing these pouches, which don't have babies in yet, but, but wearing them and trying them on has almost become like having the latest smartphone, you know. Yes, you could almost be forgiven for thinking we're talking about something that actually exists. It's an incredibly sort of tactile and and comforting personal experience holding a pouch. I can see that you had a lot of fun imagining this possibility. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> Don't let her kid you. The baby pouch is not real. Not yet anyway. Dr Helen Sedgwick's second novel, The Growing Season, is a sci-fi thriller of sorts in which she creates. Well, it's a world not unlike our own, but it's one where portable wombs are now the norm, where normal pregnancy is stigmatised and where corporate interests have come to control the technology of reproduction. Well, it's a world that's very recognisable, I think. But the big difference is that in the 1970s, and invention meant women no longer have to be pregnant. Instead, they can transfer their embryo into a pouch, which is flexible, it's portable, and it's individualised, so it can be carried by the mother or the father. And this has been widely accepted throughout society. And that, that one change has led to various other changes sort of trickle through in the society. Um, I can remember the day I got the first idea for it. I was talking with some friends about why feminism hadn't given women complete equality yet, why we still didn't have equal representation at board level, for example, in business and politics and science, why women were still expected to do the bulk of the childcare. And one of the reasons, I think, for me anyway, is that while women are still having the children, they're still going to be expected to be the primary carers. So I started thinking about what would be needed to really bring about a fundamental shift in the way we think about women's role in society, to bring about very meaningful change. And I came up with this idea of a sort of pouch so that women wouldn't need to be pregnant, so that the childbearing can be equally shared between women and men. And if that were the case, would suddenly we have flexible working conditions and and shared parental leave and so on. The pouch had become trendy, especially among the young. Why wait? when you could study part-time and still have your career, now parenthood was equal, and it came in such pretty colours. Her mother didn't know what it was like to receive the letters she'd been getting, for years now, that the pouch was beautiful, that it had changed the world for the better, that everyone was equal, now we had moved beyond natural birth, that they could help her, that they wanted to help her. The pouches had no doubts anymore. They were happy. The women and the men, they were happy. And I was getting very carried away. I, you know, I thought this was a brilliant idea. I could see how it would work. I thought I'd solved all our problems. And I looked over at my friend and she looked absolutely horrified. You know, she said to me, Helen, that is a terrible idea. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. In you that know? moment, what horrified your friend, do you think? I think she she heard me describing 
the end of women almost you know taking something that for her is a deeply important part of her identity and 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 removing it from us and basically giving it to men i think it's an idea that came before feminism though didn't it in the 1920s british biologist jbs haldane Yes. entertained the possibility. He was a, a close friend of Aldous Huxley of Brave New World fame. What was his idea? What was his prediction, his Brave New World prediction in the 1920s? He had many, actually. He was a biologist, a geneticist, a mathematician. But in particular, he said he thought one of the biggest changes was that human beings would take control of their own evolution through a combination of what he called sort of designed mutation and ectogenesis. And he was the first person to use that term, ectogenesis. And that idea was what led on to Brave New World and inspired Huxley's ideas. Brave New World is the bane of my existence. I love the book, absolutely love it. It's probably one of my favourite books, but (laughs) it is the thing that I come across the most when I'm making speeches about ectogenesis and how it would help the rights of women and the health of infants. Hi, I'm Evie Kendall. I'm a lecturer of bioethics and health humanities at the Deakin University School of Medicine. And Dr. Kendall imagines science fiction becoming the realm of the possible. She makes a strong philosophical case for what's called ectogenesis. In fact, she did a whole PhD and wrote a book about its prospects. Ectogenesis is artificial womb technology, so that can include uh, artificial wombs that are intended to gestate uh, infants from conception, presumably through IVF, uh, right through to delivery of a sort, Or it could mean partial ectogenesis, uh, which would include uh, the humidicrib technology that we already have for premature infants. So, of course, there is something in between that space, which would be if a uh, fetus needed to be delivered very early from a pregnant woman, but she didn't want to terminate the life of that fetus uh, for whatever reason, it could be transferred into an artificial womb. So ectogenesis covers all of that. So Brave New World, of course, uh, we have ectogenesis being used. It's described in quite a bit of detail. What was his imagining of it? His imagining was growing essentially clones in little jars. And then the embryos that are in the jars would be on an assembly line and they would be subjected to social conditioning to make them the perfect alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon class, which he meant uh, certain career choices. So if you were down the bottom of the social hierarchy, you might do menial labour and you would be developed in such a way that that would make you happy. So you would never dream of uh, being anything other than what you were designed to be in that society. So both biologically and socially engineering yes, the species. Absolutely. Is it generally presented as a dystopian endpoint for humanity? In my experience, ectogenesis is typically used in a negative way in a lot of science fiction. So I find it very interesting that Brave New World is cited so often when something like Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time isn't, where ectogenesis is used to achieve sexual equality in reproduction. So it's a positive uh, use of the technology. She imagined a society where She describes it as the nuclear bond is broken. So we don't have inequality across the sexes on the basis of reproduction. So they have children using ectogenesis and then they don't have biological families at all. So the child would be given to co-mothers, as they call them. So uh, usually there's three. They can be 
any gender and they will be responsible primarily for that child, which is a very interesting way of looking at the family unit. Sure is, Evie Kendall, but for some, and perhaps you, that scenario in the 1976 novel, Women on the Edge of Time, sounds fairly apocalyptic. More from Evie Kendall next episode of our science friction miniseries, Future Uterus. But in Helen Sedgwick's recent novel, The Growing Season, that nuclear bond between parent and child remains intact. When I set out to write the book, I was I was very clear in my mind that I did not want to write a dystopia at all. I, I actually set out to write a utopian fiction. Um, so I describe a society that is almost everything that I want in the beginning. And then bit by bit, you see the problems that are also there and that are being sort of kept out of view. But certainly on the surface, it has brought about a big change. Men really enjoy carrying the pouch. Fathers are feeling closer to their to their children than ever before. The pouch itself allowed him to have an intimacy with his son that he wouldn't have otherwise had. To feel what it was like to carry an unborn child, his tiny fists pressing against his belly, there was nothing like it. He'd written to Holly about it once. They'd lived not far from each other, and she was famous, so he knew which house was hers, even though they hadn't met at that stage. The first woman ever to use the pouch. Even now, he occasionally felt a little in awe of her. He'd been far too embarrassed to talk to her in person, but he wanted to tell her how wonderful it was for a man, for two men, how life-changing. It was a gift, he'd written, and he didn't know if he deserved it. And almost because men are now demanding better rights as parents, that equality has come into force throughout throughout the workplace, throughout politics, throughout uh, education as well. So now men and women equally are offered really good parental leave, flexible working conditions. You can study part-time. Every company, every university would have creches available, childcare available, things like that. But it's a company called Full Life that holds the patent for the baby pouch technology. And through that, they've come to control the entire health system. No more public health. It's all gone. Although none of that was anticipated by the brilliant scientist, a character called Frida, who first created the artificial womb. It wasn't until after I built my first living cell chamber that I heard Haldane speak at the Royal Society. He sounded smooth and assured as he talked about genetics and biostatistics, wearing a deep navy blazer with distinctive white stripes and that full moustache. It was almost a surprise he wasn't holding a pipe. He was something of a celebrity already, being such close friends with Aldous Huxley. But it took me a moment to realise what he meant when he started going on about ectogenesis. I hadn't read Brave New World, for the best, I'd say. So as he talked about external wombs and selective breeding and child production rates, I thought to myself, no, 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 that's all wrong. That's such a man's way of seeing a woman's world. It's never going to be about mass production in all the symmetrical sterility of a laboratory. No. Human beings, if nothing else, need to feel like individuals. Any change must allow for the individual to remain an intrinsic part of their own reproduction, or it will fail. I wanted to create a liberating new form of pregnancy, a genuine equality, a more reliable bond between parents and child. In that moment, I realised that my work was intensely personal. That was why I was the one who would succeed. So 50 years prior to when we meet 
the characters in your book, The Growing mm-hmm. Season, Holly has been the first to carry a child to full term in this baby pouch. Her granddaughter, Rosie, is about to use the pouch to have her yes. first child in the book. Yes. Yes. How was she received at the time as the first woman at the frontier of this new technology? By some, she was hailed as a hero and and there was a lot of press coverage. She was almost catapulted to celebrity for doing this. But there was also a reaction against it. So she was sort of attacked on the street. People would shout at her for being so unnatural, you know, for stealing the essence of what it is to be a woman and things like that. So it wasn't an easy path for her. But what, again, what Full Life have done rather cleverly is that they they offered her a big financial incentive. She comes from a, a very poor background and they offered her a lot of money for doing this. And that combined with the sort of celebrity that came with it has meant that her, her whole life was transformed. And that's been part of why the pouch has become so successful because they had this figurehead who everyone loved, you know, who everyone really warmed to, who is showing pouch births as this as this wonderful thing you could do to create this really happy family. So yeah, it's it's quite it's quite psychological the way they essentially manipulated her into becoming what they needed to promote the pouch. Ah, uh, it's a great example of corporate genius. And so, mm-hmm. how was natural birth viewed in this world? It's come to be viewed as something that's quite irresponsible. Um, so one of the other strands of, of Full Life's marketing is that the pouch is presented as being a much safer alternative. There's no more of this uh, telling mothers that they mustn't mustn't eat certain foods or, you know, mustn't drink this and that. Or, you know, the pouch provides the perfect conditions for the baby. It provides exactly the nutrients that they need and they can be tailored to the, to the parent's genetic makeup as well. It's the most healthy way you can have a baby. And so women who choose to, uh, to have a baby using natural birth, as I call it in the book, are sort of sort of looked on as quite irresponsible mothers by a lot of society. What's interesting here is that this becomes a very potent exploration of how, you know, radical new technologies, reproductive technologies in this case, are introduced, are controversial, but then become normalised, then Mm -hmm. become mainstream, then become accepted over time by Mm -hmm. wider society. And that's the case with the baby pouch. But there is resistance. It's ever so minor. And its voice yes. is barely heard. And that's where we meet Eva, an activist, yes. and her late mother, mm-hmm. Abigail. What role did you want them to play in the book in terms of civil society? Eva is is the main protagonist, really. So I wanted her to be one of us, I suppose. She's, she's how we would feel if we were suddenly thrust into this world, I think. But she's also, she's herself has had a very complicated experience with birth. So she's she's presenting the the counter argument to Holly's fame and happiness, but she's also someone who's who's willing to change, and I think that's really important for the book. And in fact, all the characters at different times are confronted with the opposite of their own point of view and are able to listen to it. And Eva is someone who learns to do that throughout the book. Mm. And we don't want to give too much away about the story yes, because trying, people, because people should that. read it. She's a complex character and there's a lot uh-huh. to her backstory which you slowly reveal throughout yes. the growing season. But let's just give people a, a, a flavour of the insights that she gleans mm-hmm. because all is not as rosy as it seems. What no. social problems, what social divides is this baby pouch generating? Well, one of the big ones, Full Life uh, took the decision to offer the pouch as an alternative to abortion. 
So if anybody is considering abortion, Full Life will offer them a, a pouch for free instead to save the life essentially of their baby and this has led to the the pouch being embraced by sort of right-wing and religious fundamentals and people like that as well as people on the left who want equality and and liberation for women it, yes. it could have gone either way with with conservatives mm-hmm. couldn't it absolutely and that's that's a an interesting and, and frightening thought really isn't it because essentially who controls these pouches then has control over over the the lives really of the of the babies within and to some extent, the parents too. Um, and it's led to a care crisis throughout society. So there are now care homes, uh, almost like orphanages, and they're full of babies who've been born via a pouch, but whose parents then don't want to raise them. So they're kept in these sort of orphanages or boarding schools outside of the, the cities. No one really knows. Well, people know they're there, but they don't like to talk about them. They don't know what to do with with all these children. Um, so that's a, a massive problem for society, and I think it's a problem that we'll we'll need to think about as as technology gets closer to what I'm describing in the book, which it will. There's also a, a class divide that's coming up between people who've been born via a pouch and people who've been born naturally, and also people who've been born via a pouch which had all the most expensive accessories versus people who've been born via a, a second-hand pouch which are seen as inferior. And indeed, there's a black market in mm-hmm. used pouches. Yes, that's right. Because it's a a biological technology, it can essentially heal itself. So after it's been used and a baby can be born, they can be recycled and used again, which is a bit icky to think of. That's pretty weird. (laughs) (laughs) And and even darker again, there there are suggestions of pouch abuse. Mm -hmm. Yes. What do you mean? Well, I suppose once you you take a baby out of uh, its mother and put it in the world, it becomes vulnerable in a way. And this is something that Full Life have tried very hard not to to have discussed publicly. But in the book, I show an abusive or certainly a controlling relationship in which a man, the father of the child, won't let his wife carry the pouch, for example. He wants it all the time. He'll maybe kind of threaten her with what he might do to it if she doesn't do what he says, things like that. So in in a very dark way, I could imagine if if people wanted to, they could use it really to manipulate mothers, to manipulate parents. There is a vulnerability about it, I think. One can imagine a, a real dystopia where the state then controls the babies that once they're in the pouches, the state owns all the pouches. And women have sort of become redundant and, and individuals have lost their rights over their own reproduction, which is a very scary... Uh, scary future. Um, we talked briefly about about Haldane earlier. And- to remind you, that's JBS Haldane, the British scientist and friend of Aldous Huxley, who in the 1920s predicted the creation of artificial wombs. He was sceptical in a way, and he talked about how scientific advance could be used for bad as well as good, and that if it is to be used for good, it has to be accompanied by an advance in our ethics as well. And I think that's absolutely essential. You know, when we bring out these new technologies, we have to think very deeply about how they're going to be used and make sure that we are protecting ourselves from misuse of technology. Yes, but what you illustrate really beautifully in this book is, you know, how it comes to pass that sceptics and activists around new technologies often become outcasts. You know, they're often castigated or cast as nutty or Luddites. This is a very familiar dynamic around any social critique 
of Mm -hmm. science and technology. Mm, Very much so, yes. It's interesting. I I don't know why we do that. I don't know why we're so hostile to opposing points of view as a species. Well, they (laughs) serve to constrain scientific progress, and that is disturbing to scientists. Yes, but it's not the scientists who paint people as nuts, usually. It's the media who does it, I think. And that's what's happened here. Full life haven't needed to uh, to attack Abigail or Eva or to ridicule them because uh, the, the journalist in the book, Piotr, has essentially done that for them. He's painted them as, as loons because they don't embrace technology. And so it's, it's this sort of tapping in on, I don't know, I suppose we just want to believe that we're right all the time, don't we? And when somebody is saying maybe we've done something very wrong, laughing at them is one of the best ways to silence them. Move, she screamed at them all, move! He was still lying there, attached. She had never imagined that the pouch, their pouch, Will's home for nine months that they had stroked and spoken to and loved. She had never imagined that it could repulse her. The deep sucking red of the insides of it, visible now through that awful cut down the front, wet and dripping. The different skins, the layers that had grown with him, expanded with him, the biosocket for the audio adapter, useless now, obscene, and the umbilical cord. Get him out, she screamed. A doctor stepped forward and she spun round, furious. Not you, get away from him. And so she reached in and clasped the cord that was sticky and limp in her hands, clasped it and pulled and pulled as it leaked on her fingers and fluid ran down to her wrist, but it wouldn't come out of the pouch lining. She screamed as she pulled, but it made no difference. She couldn't free him. Without waiting for a response, her nana reached out and cut the cord. And baby Will was free at last. Something really bad happens in this book. And Mm -hmm. it it gives you a sense that something is very wrong with these baby pouches and that there's been a corporate cover-up of that problem. Yes. And there again, you have to wonder how we navigate risk and progress and the relationship Mm -hmm. between the two when it comes to reproductive technologies. We've seen it with IVF. Now... We are seeing uterus transplants occurring. We are seeing the development of artificial wombs to carry, potentially carry premature babies to full term Mm -hmm. in a healthy way. So we are here and now uh, already seeing developments that mirror the story you tell here. Absolutely, yes. This isn't a book set hundreds of years in the future by any means. No. Um, The technology I describe here I think could be with us within within a couple of generations, really. It's, do you really? It's very close. Mm-hmm. I do, absolutely. You mentioned the, the artificial womb that so far has been used for premature lambs. It was invented by some scientists in Philadelphia. Uh, they call it the bio bag, not the baby pouch. But uh, but interestingly, they've used a similar sort of very very friendly sounding name for it, the bio bag. And they they took a highly premature lamb that wouldn't have survived otherwise and were able to keep it alive within a fluid filled, flexible pouch, almost exactly like what I'm describing in the book. It was born. It's still alive. It's a very healthy lamb now. So they predicted that they would be ready for human trials within three years three years. Now, this obviously isn't, it's not from the moment of conception, it's for premature babies. And I think they said it was 22 weeks or something they were aiming for. But, you know, when you take that and then add to it IVF technology, it's very easy to see how the two technologies will will fairly soon meet in the middle. And then we will have what we need to create a complete external womb. So the technology is coming. 
you know, we will be able to do this. I'm absolutely certain that we will be able to create an artificial womb in the near future. And human beings, you know, once we can do something, the chances are we're going to do it. I think it's in our nature. And that is exactly where we're heading in the next episode. Dr. Helen Sedgwick's novels are The Growing Season and The Comet Seekers. She did her doctorate in physics before finding fiction and is now working on a crime trilogy that a publisher has snapped up and she's just grown her own baby as well. My daughter's only only 11 months old. So <laughs> so you've just gone through all this. I have, yes. Without a pouch. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, yes. Did you fantasise about the pouch? Oh, I did. I would definitely have used a pouch personally. I'm a big believer in science and, and medicine for making our lives better. I absolutely believe in the, in the value of, of medicine and technology. Um, and that's not to say it wasn't an amazing experience, because in many ways it was. Um, it's, it's a fascinating thing to go through. Um, but yes, I would use the pouch if I could. But uh, I mean, as soon as you're pregnant, actually, you become confronted with with the inequality. And it's often by well-meaning people, but it's just this attitude that somehow you, you, you've become a mother, you're carrying a baby, you're not the same as, as other people anymore, you've become something else. And I felt it all the time, really every day that I was pregnant and, and every day since. And it's My, particularly potent in, in science where so many women's careers get interrupted by birth, but then permanently interrupted. You know, they can never Mm -hmm. really get back on the scientific research track that you need to be on to succeed. Well, I mean, it's it's so difficult in in research because you're expected to somehow put that before everything in life, which is a big ask for anyone, I think. But yes, the sort of if you're a postdoc, for example, it's really difficult. You're on a temporary contract. You're expected to travel around the world and and things like that. And it's very difficult to do that if you're also trying to raise a young family. And I must say that I think the the way we work, all of us, is is quite damaging. Um, I think we work far too much. I think we're expected to put work before family a lot of the time. Men traditionally have done that without complaint and women have been pushed to the to the family either either willingly or unwillingly but for me a world where we all work a little bit less and all have a little bit more time to spend with our family would be better for everyone women and men you know it's given me so much to think about i really enjoyed this book and i thank you so much for joining me on the program Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. In the next edition of Science Friction, meet one of the world's first recipients of a uterus transplant. In fact, she describes it as her sister's baby bag, which is kind of reminiscent of today's very sci-fi scenario, isn't it? But this is an incredible real-life story. You can talk to me on Twitter, at Natasha Mitchell, email me from the show's homepage, and uh, tell your friends about the podcast. Share the love. Happy silly season from the whole ABC science team. Ciao. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.